Welcome back, Warriors. Tante Sego Anibuju. Kwe Ninda Luizi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and governing practices. And it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And sometimes that means we all work in different ways to do that. The many ways in which our peoples have resisted colonization and genocide is why we were able to survive until today. We have carried ourselves with the power and dignity of our ancestors and the grace and peace of our teachings. But despite this, Indigenous peoples have been portrayed as criminal, dangerous, and even been called savages. Even the American Declaration of Independence, which celebrates that all men are created equal, at the same time goes on to describe us as merciless Indian savages. But we were not the savages. And that's literally the title of the book written by our guest today, Dr. Daniel Paul. Dr. Daniel Paul is a Mi'kmaq elder, author, and human rights activist who have won many awards, including the Order of Nova Scotia and the Order of Canada. He's also received honorary degrees from the Université Saint-Anne and Dalhousie University, and this is just to name a few of his awards. He also wrote this foundational book, We Were Not the Savages, which is literally the book that every Indigenous student and academic all over Turtle Island has read because it challenges the myth of our people as somehow us being the savages. But before we get into the book, I want to make sure to um, welcome Dr. Paul to the show. Thank you so much for joining the Warrior Life podcast. Uh, you're welcome and just call me Danny I don't like being called doctor <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. okay yeah that's I always say the same thing well thank you like I, I feel really fortunate because personally I've always been a huge admirer of your work I read everything that you post on your website I've got your book I I just I really appreciate that you always share your wisdom and that you challenge all of these misconceptions about us. So thanks for taking the time. Um, and maybe you would like to share with some of the listeners slash viewers where you're from. I originally came from Indian Brook Reserve in Nova Scotia. I lived there until I was 14. And then the nuns and the priests decided because I wouldn't do a math exam twice, which I got a hundred done in the first place. And the priest escorted me off the school grounds and I wasn't permitted to go. Uh, my father went and asked the Indian agent if I could go to the uh, school outside our community in Mill Village. And uh, the Indian agent's reply at that time was, uh, it would be too disturbing to have an Indian going to uh, to the ratepayers going to that school. So, I my adult life, I guess, more or less, began when I was fourteen. That's incredible. And and so, where where are you now? Uh, today, I live in Halifax. I've been here quite a while, and uh, over fifty years now. And. The way I look at Nova Scotia, it all belongs to us, so I don't see why I should live on any Indian reserve when I can live where 
everybody please. And I think if we're going to uh, assert our sovereignty over our land, we better begin to uh, say these little homelands that the government of Canada and the colonial government set aside for us are not uh, all we have. Exactly. We're from Mi'kma'ki, first and foremost. Yep, that's right. <laughs> the whole, the whole territory is the whole kit and caboodle, unseated, unsurrendered, unextinguished. Actually, I had fun one day in court. Uh, you know, this was years and years ago, and it was a land issue. It was something or other. I can't remember exactly. It's so long ago, and so many things happened in between. But I always remember this. Uh, the 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 lawyer for the uh, province or feds whatever it was at the time, he asked me. He says, "Where do you live?" And uh, I said, "I live at 28 Allendale Crescent here in Halifax." And he says, "Well, uh, you have on this that you live on uh, Indian land, Mi'kmaq land." And I said, "Yes, I do." <laughs> <laughs> and, and his response was. According to this, you don't. And I said, well, according to me, I do. I said, uh, I don't recall my ancestors ever seeding one square inch of this property. And I said, uh, and to his credit, the judge started laughing. He said, well, take Mr. Paul at his word. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, it sounds funny, but it's so true. Like, there are no trees well, that surrender uh, all our lands. Yeah, it's, uh, the way it is, and uh, uh, I feel quite comfortable in saying what I please, and nobody can uh, uh, contradict me because uh, they can't show me any uh, uh, release of our land or cessation of our land or anything like that. So. Exactly, and you're the authority on the issue anyway, so if they need an expert opinion, they need only ask you. <laughs> well, that day, that's what I was there for. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. <laughs> So it was quite funny. I uh, I appreciate what the judge had to say too. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he's got to think about it. I mean, you, there must be so many stories like that throughout your life where there's just they simply have been bought and sold this myth yeah. that somehow we gave it all up and they actually believe it. Well. Let's put it this way. You don't get mad about these things, okay? I can remember an Indian agent that I was having a little discussion with, and I was telling them he was wrong, and finally he looked at me and said, you're not very respectful of your bidders. And I said, well, on the face of the earth, I haven't met them yet, so I'm <laughs> not, not meeting one today. And perhaps when I die, if there's a beyond, I will meet my bidders then. Not now. <laughs> so... so this is where you have to handle this stuff. Uh, way back in the early 1990s, I was writing some columns for the Halifax Herald and uh, uh, about the history as it transpired. This is before We Were Not the Savages, the first edition was published. And uh, I always remember walking through the mall in Sunnyside uh, and uh, this gentleman came up to me and he uh, elderly gentleman had one of them handlebar mustache and looked very English type. And I think he probably was more English than the English. And uh, he looked at me and he said, you creature, you, how dare you write such terrible things about my sainted ancestors. And I started laughing. I took my card out of my pocket and passed it to him. I said, my book will be published 
shortly. And uh, I said, I suggest you buy a copy and give me a call and we'll have a good discussion about it. Well, this is almost 30 years later, and uh, he must be one hell of a slow reader because I never got that call. <laughs> yeah, either that or he was so cranky he couldn't call. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's what I mean, you know, it's idiocy, and you, know, you laugh at it, the thing because you take that series seriously, too seriously, it'll drive you crazy. Well, because it's daily. I mean, just think about what our, even today, we still get those things. Our kids are still taught that stuff sometimes. Well, I'm not feeling too well anymore. And, you know, I'll be 83 soon. But I I was out talking at uh, lecturing at universities quite often in the past. And I uh, (laughs) often brought up the subject of uh, burning at the stake and drawing quarter key hall and then all this stuff pressing people to death. And, and uh, I said, well, when you're, you know, you're uh, branding somebody as savage, I think perhaps you should brand people that did that savages <laughs> rather than us. And uh, it actually went over pretty good with most of the audiences I had in the university, young people, and, you know, they uh quite open-minded and they looked at it and sure enough you know when you're burning somebody at the stake it's not exactly going to a picnic yeah no kidding (laughs) but you know that's one of the things I like about listening to you speak because you know you're going into an audience where you know there's going to be people there who are open-minded to hear what you have to say and there's going to be people that are in there that are like defensive and so there's a little bit of tension but if you make those kinds of comments and show just how ridiculous it is it kind of puts people at ease that well yeah you know we kind of have to admit that maybe this isn't right (laughs) well uh, I have some pictures of an instrument that they used in Europe that is too horrible to mention on this but uh, for execution and uh, I I did use that quite often when I was lecturing, and uh, I can remember one girl going, oh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so removed. Well, one of the things that, like, when people come on this podcast, the listeners always want to know people's backstory, like, what what's a little bit of your life journey? What are some of the things that you've done? So, I mean, I've taught, I told people that, you, you know, you clearly you have honorary doctorates and you've won awards and things like that. We know that you were a columnist for the Halifax Chronicle, but, you know, before we get to your book, what, what were you doing along the way that influenced you and got you to where you are today? Well, what, really began to influence me was when I was very young, probably three or four years old. And uh, my father was working away from home and couldn't get home. And it was a long weekend and we had nothing to eat. So I went with my mother on Monday over to Indian Agency, which was at that time, probably a couple of miles away through the woods. And uh, he made her beg for three and a half hours before he finally uh, consented to giving her a a small ration. And uh, he did so, we got there about eight o'clock and he kept her waiting until about quarter to 12 when it was coming to his lunch hour. And I can always remember that because I was sitting there saying to myself, even at that young age, when I grow up, no bastard like you is going to do that to me. 
And uh, that really got me started, but really got me looking at our history was I was actually taught in school, in uh, Indian day school, that we came from a very inferior culture and a savage culture and barbarian culture. So uh, when I left home when I was 14 and went to Boston, I was working in all kinds of factories and then I was working in a hat factory in a a uh, black lady from either Louisiana or Mississippi, I can't remember exactly, but she was from the South. She called me over one day and said, come and have lunch with me. And we were sitting there and she says, boy, you walk around here with your head down as, um, you know, much as con uh, conceding that these white folks are better than you. And I said, well, you know, and she says, I want you to know something. She said, you're probably better than most of them. <laughs> and she said, exactly. What do you know about your culture? And I said, I know very little. Well, she says, why don't you learn a lot about it? Maybe you'll wind up being very proud of your history. So I stayed in Boston until 1960. And then I came home, went to business college and went from job to job in 1971. I finally landed with Indian Affairs, but I went to business college in 1970, and the Indian agency had, uh, in Shubanakti at the time, had two positions available. And I soon, through the, the bookkeeping part of that course, with flying colors and uh, uh, one of the top graduates of the school, so I applied for one of the jobs, and another guy from the school that barely made it, he applied for the other one. He got hired full time and I was told that I had to uh, uh, have a probationary period of six months. And uh, I took it for one day and then I went into the Indian agent and told him he could shove his job up, you know where. <laughs> and I went to Halifax and got myself a job at the, at the abattoir, Nova Scotia abattoir as an uh, assistant accountant. But I uh, always remember that because uh, it was an experience that taught me right there and then that uh, even uh, the people that were supposed to be looking after our trust interest and uh, our best interests were more racist probably than the general public at that time. And uh, so I went about my business and I finally wound up with uh, non-public funds at Staticona, the naval base. and. Uh, was working there when I got a call from the regional director that uh, they were opening a district office in Halifax and if I would be interested in going to work. And so I said yes, and uh, I applied and went. And uh, I sat around there for oh, about two months doing nothing, reading newspapers and stuff. And finally, I went into the district manager and I told him, what the hell did you fellas hire me for? And I said I had a very responsible job where it was. And uh, you brought me here. So uh, he found work for me as a construction uh, account clerk. And then I went from up and up and up until I wound up at the end of it as superintendent of lands, revenues, and trust. Even that was uh, quite an experience because uh, I uh, was told that they weren't too fussy about me getting that position. <laughs> <laughs> regional office so I took the Indian Act and all the regulations I made under it and I uh, uh, educated myself quite well and uh, 
the day of the interview, Stanley Johnson, a friend of mine from Millbrook, the chief at, uh, at one time, uh, he, at the time he was president of Union Nova Scotia Indians and he was out in Vancouver and I called him up and I said, Stan, the interview was tomorrow. So he jumped on an airplane, managed to get back and he looked quite beat <laughs> at the interview. And so uh, uh, I uh, had the interview and the, this was funny again because uh, the uh, director general from Ottawa, I can't uh, remember his name right offhand, but he was on the board and he, uh, they asked me, I think 50 or 60 questions and I answered every one. <laughs> and, uh, so, so I got the job and then he took me out to lunch. Uh, uh, and it was funny because he told me, he says, uh, you know, he said, they didn't want you in this position. But he said, there's no way I could refuse you. <laughs> I said, that's fine. So it, it was, uh, and along the way, it was getting a lot of information about our people and the real history and setting aside some of our own people who tend to have, uh, let's put it this way, a uh, go stray from time to time and mm. uh, bore uh, cultural things from uh, maybe the Cree or, you know, the Mohawk or something and think it's ours. But I looked at, uh, began to do it. And uh, I think along the lines there, you know, I became chief almost everywhere I worked and outside of departments. So uh, I really uh, think it was a good experience. I got a lot of experience on my belt, how to run a business and everything else. Then I uh, uh, got involved in the boat harbor thing, uh, the pollution. And I always remember uh, Chief Raymond Francis coming into my office in 1981, totally frustrated because he had been trying to get something done about that uh, since 1967, 14 years. And uh, he told me all about it. I knew something about it, let's put it this way, but he, he was involved in details and he filled me in. So I got out all the files and I read them and uh, I was shocked because uh, Indian Affairs uh, did not attend uh, to their fiduciary trust responsibilities and looking after Boat Harbor, uh, uh, the Pictoland Band. So Raymond uh, came back a week or so later and he said, what did you, in all that years, what they were trying to do was to take on the problems. And uh, he'd come into my office and he said, well, what can we do? And I said, one thing you can do is quit looking at the problems. The problems ain't got nothing to do with the reserve or anything else. The, uh, the uh, surrendering of the uh, uh, riparian rights about harbor by the band was done by the federal government and the federal government is our trustee not nova scotia i said what you do was you have to get a lawyer and uh, go after the feds and <laughs> <laughs> here's me working <laughs> this is where i wore two hats until i uh, left and went with the confederacy mainland mi'kmaqs from this time on and uh, was quite funny because I went out looking for a lawyer and I interviewed for the band. I interviewed quite a few white lawyers and uh, they came on as if they knew everything. And I knew full well they didn't do bullet. They didn't do BS about Indian law. So mm -hmm. I kind of rejected them. And finally, 
we had no Mi'kmaq lawyers at the time. So I, uh, I had a friend, Tony Johnstone, who was head of the uh, Human Rights Commission, Nova, Nova Scotia Human Rights Commission at the time. And I asked Tony if he knew any black lawyers, and he, he did. He uh, knew a Tony Ross from St. Kitts uh, uh, out in the Caribbean. And I went down to see Tony, and he said he was interested. And I said, well, I'll bring you down a box of, uh, you know, uh, material about Indian law and everything else. And uh, told him, here's my opinion, and the federal crown is responsible here, and they're the ones that we have to sue. So I left it with him, and two weeks later, went down and uh, had a chat with him, and he was pretty well uh, uh, hepped up to go. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, he agreed with my uh, uh, assessment that it was the federal crown we had to go after. And uh, so it was, uh, you know, when we started looking into that, it was absolutely uh, unbelievable what, uh, what was done to that band. I always remember uh, uh, they were buying out the white folks around Boat Harbor and paying all this money for them. And uh, uh because they knew damn well at that time that the harbor was going to be full beyond uh, human use. And, but at a public meeting, they had told the band members that they'd be able to fish and swim in it and fish farm and recreation, the whole thing. And uh, that they had a similar thing operating in New Brunswick and they'd take the chief and counselor up there and uh, show them how pristine the water would be that would be in this kind of a situation and so they went up and uh, the engineer got on his knees and took a little cup out and scooped out a cup of water and drank it and we discovered that facility didn't come into uh, operation two years after that visit and uh, in fact the only place in North America that had a similar type mill at that point in time was uh, I believe in Minnesota or Wisconsin, one of them states out west. And, uh, but when they were talking about the land, this is what really uh, put it out and bluntly pissed me off, was uh, they were you know figuring how much they were gonna pay these uh, white uh, landholders. And then somebody said, what about the Mi'kmaq? <laughs> And uh, the response of the chief engineer was, so they're only Indians. Wow. And that wasn't writing, believe it or not. And under discoveries, when we got this individual on the witness stand under oath, and we asked him if uh, he did say something like that, he said, yes. He said, my business was to get the mill up and running. That was it. And no... Uh, scruples whatsoever about subjecting the people who picked the land into years and years of living beside a foul mess. That's the kind of thing, you know, uh, throughout my life I've been battling. And <laughs> then in the late night, I uh, went to work for, uh, well, I set up the Confederacy mainland Mi'kmaq in uh, 1985. And then uh, uh, started getting involved in collecting material because I was getting the idea. I did write a, a short book, uh, booklet type thing, uh, the confrontation between uh, Big Bond European civilizations. And uh, I decided I'd go for, I was talking to a good friend of mine uh, uh, here in Halifax, Janet Kitts. She was a uh, uh, the husband of uh, 
another good friend who was a lawyer here in Halifax, and Janet uh, had read some of my uh, columns that I had written for the paper and uh, my booklet, actually, and he told me, why don't you write a book? Yeah. <laughs> and put the whole thing together and uh, I planted the seeds and uh, she knew the publisher uh, editor at uh, Nimbus Publishing at the time and we all had a meeting and uh, got together and picked out a name and uh, after considering everything and uh, knew that we didn't burn people at the stake and draw and quarter them and tire and feather them and stuff when Europeans invaded so uh uh, we settled on the title, We Were Not the Savages. And uh, from there on, I had the book published in 93. And I found that it uh, wasn't, uh, how would you say, it, uh, full enough, I guess, with the material that I wanted in. So I took it off the market in 1996 and I uh, completely rewrote it and uh, uh, put in more. Uh, references and what have you and in the original book i used the term aboriginal and i became i hate hated the thing and i uh decided i'd go for amerindian in the in the new edition which uh i i can live with <laughs> and, and uh so uh it 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 was a a very exciting thing and uh I owe a debt of gratitude to the premier of the day of Nova Scotia, John Savage, who uh, uh, I sent a copy of the book to him and asked him if he'd be my keynote speaker at the launch, and he agreed. Wow. And he, and he showed, read the book and showed up and brought all his cabinet with him and most of the deputy ministers. And uh, I think we sold almost five or 600 books that day. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. It got wide publicity. I, uh, it even was mentioned in New York Times. So uh, by him coming there and making an appearance, so it was. Uh, uh, and from there on, people began to read and uh, talking to students in high schools and and uh, other schools and uh, changing minds. And that's what you have to do. You got to look at this thing as incremental. You're not going to have an overnight change. If I had told you in 1990 that uh, in 2020 that Edward Cornwallis' statue would be gone and that, you know, the park would be renamed and there would be no uh, businesses in Halifax named Cornwallis any longer, you would have laughed at me, I suppose, but <laughs> it's all being done. And uh, that's the only way you can do it. Uh, we can't say, you know, uh, uh, and what you have to do and what I did with We Were Not the Savages, if you recall the first page, I make it a point to say, this is your history, not ours. Okay. Uh, I'm relating it. You so, isn't it. There, I guess that gives yeah. you a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, that brings us up to the second edition and the one, this newest one I have. I have a couple editions. I think this one says third edition. That's the third edition, yeah. Yeah. So did you change anything from the second to the third? Oh, lots of things. Yeah. Lots of things. Okay. And the fourth edition to be out. Uh, hope, I'm kind of looking at a date next year. And what I want to do is get it finished as uh quickly as possible because when you're 83 you know you open your eye the first thing while <laughs> well, i'm still here <laughs> so so 
Uh, I think I have a lot of powerful information to relay in another edition. So uh, I was, uh, you know, Fernwood Publishing. And, yeah. Uh, and and uh, uh, Earl and I were having a chat, a chat one day and he come here and we were talking and uh, he says, why don't you write a new, another edition? And I said, no, I don't think so. I, you know, I mentioned it to you one time, I think at Mount St. Vincent. I, yeah. Suggested maybe you give me a hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, I was thinking about it, and I said, I'm going to do it. Okay. Yes. And uh, so I've been working on it ever since, put in a lot of hours, and uh, uh, I think it's going to be a great book because uh, it's, uh, uh, I remember one statement made by uh, uh, one lady, and uh, God, rambles network i think it is and uh, she simply stated we were not the savages in my history this is a book for me <laughs> so, so if that book was for her that uh, i'm gonna make it uh, right for this uh, and, and it's funny you know the book was quite widespread pat and i were uh, on a trip across the united states <clears throat> about 10 years or so ago and we wound up in uh, Arizona and way in the middle of the desert, we came to this uh, uh, arts and crafts outlet, a bunch of them and stopped. And this girl behind the counter looks at me and says, I know you. I said, you know me, how do you know? <laughs> she says, my sister has your book and uh, we were not the savages. And she loves it. I said, have you read it? No. <laughs> and I, not, I don't read books, but my sister loves it. So, uh, so it, it's changed a lot of minds and a lot of, mm -hmm. and that's the way you do. You provide the information and uh, back it up. You can't just go out and make things uh, up off the cuff. And, and uh, if you do somewhere online, you're going to be stymied and you're going to be corrected and embarrassed i would say well i like your <clears throat> book to me has been so personally impactful it's almost like it's a bit of a protective shield you know when i was first starting out and when you're young you know the basics like you know this is my land and i have treaty rights and we're strong and independent but you don't know all the the historical stuff you don't know all the reasons why you don't necessarily know how to articulate it or explain it so when people are making fun of you at school saying, oh, you guys are just savages or heathens or you guys, you know, are primitive or whatever. I always felt like, you know, especially at university, this was my answer. <laughs> here, here it is. No, we it wasn't us that was doing bad things. It was you. And here's my proof. So even though I didn't have all the knowledge yet, it was like this. This protected me somehow. I think one of the things that really spoke uh, the truth about racism was Dr. Robson in the report he fashioned in the 1930s about uh, uh, which was the seeds of centralization here in the Maritimes. And uh, he said he was around, you know, uh, interviewing some Caucasian folks and they were all complaining about lazy Indians and so forth and so on. And uh, then he wrote in his report, well, they, uh, and they won't work. And uh, his uh, response was, well, they can't work when you wouldn't give them a job. Okay. 
<laughs> and that uh, more or less said it all because the uh, very difficult in those days and racism was wide open, not only again, well, uh, even, you know, for Jews and Muslims here in Nova Scotia, uh, right up until the 1960s, everything was split right in two. There was a Catholic school board in the, in the Protestant schools and Queen Elizabeth school was for Protestants and uh, the St. Pat's was for uh, Catholics and there was a Catholic uh, infirmary hospital was for Catholics and the VG Victoria General was for Protestants. Everything was split down the middle. And uh, so when you're looking at and Leonard Kitts, the Jew ran for uh, mayor, I think it was 1956, if memory serves me correctly, and got elected. And uh, But at that point in time, he was still barred from social clubs. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh my gosh. So when you look at our racism and uh uh there, you know, there were segregated cemeteries. There's one over in St. Peter's uh church over in Dartmouth that uh has a colored section, okay? And <laughs> it's unbelievable when you look at the history of not only Nova Scotia across Canada uh, and uh it's still, you know, quite uh, pronounced in many places across this land, and we still have a lot of work to do. Along, and uh, but you're looking at the residential schools. I think everybody wants to just hone in on that and forget about scalp proclamation, starvation, malnutrition, and all the rest of it. Uh, the Mi'kmaq population, for instance, from uh, 1867 to the 1940s, and Hardly increased period. Uh, uh, malnutrition was widespread among the people. And uh, so, you know, such things as the flu often were fatal uh, and uh, in that kind of condition. So we have a good history, a history of uh, uh, survival and perseverance. Uh, per I can't get the word out. Perseverance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, and, uh, we, uh, we're overcoming and uh, we still got a long way to go, and uh, but we'll get there. It seems like these issues, although like there's certain ones in here, like different times, different parts of history, different political context, maybe even different political players but ultimately you know you've got this thread of of racism against Mi'kmaq people that as much informed things like scalping bounties or starvation policies or land theft as think of things that are happening today like the the fishing dispute or what they call the fishing dispute i i don't call it a dispute i mean that you're talking about peaceful Mi'kmaq fishers in Sebaganagadi being attacked being called racist names and buildings set on fire and in other first nation Mi'kmaq first nations people using guns at fishermen and i'm thinking you know that's not so far removed from some of the violence of the past I sometimes wonder if it's got much to do with racism. It's more for, uh, in the sense of protecting my wealth. Oh, right. The money. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. I, always, uh, I remember up in the burnt ch church thing way back when the decision first came down and uh, 
this young Acadian uh, uh, calling toward yes. the big, uh, yelling toward the big uh, boat. Uh, I wish my ancestors had finished doing to your ancestors what they were doing. And I started laughing. I said, that boy needs an education. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Acadians and the Mi'kmaq were, you know, intermarrying. And again, uh, I think it was more to do with uh, uh, garden by yeah. uh, white privilege or whatever. Yeah. You want yeah, literally, it's like your power, yeah. your wealth. Or, you know, that all comes from stolen lands, stolen resources, and violent acts. I mean, that power only came from the brutal acts that you describe in this book. Now, there's there's a lot of our listeners that listen from the U.S., but across Canada and other countries. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about something that, you know, other Indigenous peoples in other countries aren't, aren't necessarily aware that there was actually in this country in Mi'kmaq territory, scalping bounties, literally a price on our heads. It, uh, if you read the back page of the book, I think you'll, uh, it, Jeffrey Plank gives the great answer there about simply, uh, they made up a fairy tale and it was carried along quite nicely. And actually they had some help from a lot of Mi'kmaq people who were, uh, going on about the Mi'kmaq princes going over to London and, you know, having, uh, being greeted by the royalty and whatever, yeah. blah, 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 and all that stuff, which uh, was a load of bull as far as I'm concerned. The Mi'kmaq and the uh, British were at war from almost from the first time they set foot here. And the only man that uh, I ra ran into who made a comment the, was Joe Howe in 1867, Joseph Howe, uh, who at the time was a politician and a, a news media person. Mm -hmm. He simply made uh, the statement to the effect that Mi'kmaq had good reason for what they did. They were fighting for their country. <laughs> what more can you say? And that's the honest truth right there. And uh, it, it's uh, it's something like, you know, propaganda is a terrible thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at Colin Powell, uh, who was the Secretary of State at the time, going to the United Nations, making a case, and something he was ashamed of later on, that uh, uh, Iraq, uh, the Saddam Hussein, had weapons of mass destruction, which mm -hmm. he didn't. And uh, it was uh, uh, that kind of thing. That's propaganda, okay? And it... Uh, makes a good reason and the only way to overcome propaganda is to speak up and uh, provide a viable rebuttal to it okay and uh, you can't rebut something by fairy tales you can't rebut a fairy tale by a fairy tale yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> and uh, I knew about the scale proclamations uh, when I was quite young actually and oh. uh, I kind of took it with a grain of salt and uh, uh, like a relate, I believe, and I'm not sure if I have been the book or not, but my brother Lawrence and I go into the Piccadilly and uh, uh, Norman Brooks from Indian Brooks and uh, having a few beer and we didn't have much money and uh, wondered where we're going to get the next one. Then I happened to look behind Lawrence, who was that we uh, back to the wall and I saw this proclamation thing a replica of 
Cornwallis's proclamation. I got up and read it, and then I thought maybe, you know, half uh, thought it was a joke. And I told Lawrence, well, I don't know where you're going to get yours, but we know where we're going to get yours. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, got to thinking about it and knew it was the truth. Okay. And uh, I think that was another thing that propelled me on my way to put this stuff on the table so people would have to uh, look at it and uh, accept it as the, you know, all the, all the information and, uh, and that book is at the archives, uh, Nova Scotia archives, or uh, uh, some of it's in New York State archives and what have you. But uh, it's there and it's for people to read. Well, that that's, it's one of the things, I mean, I learned lots when I first read your book, but it was one of the things that growing up, I heard stories, people would say, oh, you don't even know how bad it was. They had scalping bounties on our head. But uh, I always you know, because of Westerns and because of like Bugs Bunny cartoons and all that stuff, it was always, we were always the ones portrayed as doing that. So I I never, th- I thought, oh, that's just, you know, that can't be true. It wasn't until I actually read your book that I, I learned, oh gosh, it is true. They actually did have scalping bounties and it wasn't us, it was them who had the bounties. And I, w- I just remember being so shocked but that here it was in black and white, yeah. you know, that, that in fact it was true. And actually, actually it's uh, quite funny, really, in the sense. Uh, I was accosted one time, uh, you know, uh, about the Big Bob being headhunters. <laughs> and uh, my God almighty, I, I wondered where that came from. I got a copy of the book. Uh, I'll bring it just like. Oh, it's kind of shiny. It's uh, Roger Sutton by uh, 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 Thomas H. Riddell. Okay. And uh, I didn't know where in the name of God these people were getting the information about, uh, you know, uh, the big mob being headhunters and taking the head when, you know, where they, wow. when they were at war. So uh, one day I was down at the waterfront and a friend of mine owns a bookstore at the Historic Properties and brought that to me and he said, did you ever read that? And I said, no, I never heard of it actually. And he gave it to me and I brought it home and read it. And in that, that's one of the most racist books I ever read. And uh, perhaps you should get a copy. Yes. Of it it. You know, I'm going to do that now. I'm going to go Google this book and buy this book because I have to read it. And uh, he uh, depicts the Mi'kmaq about being about as barbarian as you could possibly uh uh, B and uh, that's where the the notion that and they took heads when they killed an enemy, and that's where it comes from. Comes from that book. And uh, 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 be honest with you, to be fair, the Cadians didn't fare too well in that book either. To be honest with you, it, wow. it's uh, they were ignorant, you know, next to being savages and so forth and so on. But uh, he. Uh, is the man that uh, uh, wrote the book called Warden of the North. And I like to remind everybody that it's not really a history. It was uh, <laughs> gossiped about yeah, yeah. being a history. But if you've got a history, you have to have references in the back and everything else to back up your book. And that's that don't exist in that particular book. Well, it's it's just one of the reasons why 
I value so much the work you do because you document the history uh, for us because that's important in all the work that we do. I mean, for anyone to understand, I was having people sending me emails when people were upset about the Cornwallis statue. I was getting hate mail saying, Mm -hmm. you don't know anything about Cornwallis. Cornwallis was this great person and I'm his distant cousin or whatever. And I was thinking to myself, I don't know the history. How are you sending me a hate mail? Do do you know the history? Like I never respond to hate mail, but I always wondered, you know, someday if I could respond, I would say, do you even know what Cornwallis is associated with? And I think that's part of the problem. Nobody was taught this stuff in school. Like how many people growing up were taught about everything that Cornwallis did or that he was issuing scalping proclamations? He uh, actually, the English were using uh, scalp proclamations in the 1600s. Uh, initially, it was for heads, okay? The, they had bounties on heads, and I'm not uh, right off bat. I think it was around 1667 that they uh, issued the first scalp proclamation at that time in their efforts to wipe, uh, wipe out the tribes along what became uh, uh, today called New England, okay? And uh, harvesting the scalps there. And uh, uh, that's where, how it started. And the Mi'kmaq, uh, actually, if you look up the history of scalping, you'll find it was quite widely used in Europe for uh, way before the two, uh, before the, <laughs> the modern history even began. Uh, uh, I think I read one about uh, uh, 2000 before Christ, somewhere along there. So, oh, wow. So, scalping was not a Mi'kmaq thing and it was used extensively. Actually, the last scalp proclamation in North America was uh, issued in California, I think, in 1856. And the California government at that time was looking to exterminate all the indigenous people of California. And so uh, that that was the last scalp. Not even that long ago. No, no. This is a rather relatively uh, 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 recent history when you're looking at the overall uh, trans, uh, uh, how would you say, it, the unrolling of historical facts. Yeah. It's just, to me, it always reminds me you know like I wish my older self could talk to myself as a little girl when kids because I went to a primarily white school and so I always got made fun of and they would make you know all the so-called Indian noises and you know the scalping motions and stuff and I always thought to myself no wonder they're making fun of me because that must be a terrible thing that Indians are going around scalping people but to not to not know to not know that 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 wasn't true and to learn later that it you know that it wasn't us it was them and and you can apply that to a whole lot of things it wasn't us doing these things it was them well uh, the big ma i mean the english uh, british they used three scalp proclamations here and what began what at that time uh, they called nova scotia acadia acadie and uh, the french issued one too, also from Lewisburg, but their scale proclamation was only for uh, uh, British soldiers, okay, whereas the one for the Mi'kmaq was for men, women, and children. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, if you look at Governor Shirley's uh, declaration of war in 1744 for the Mi'kmaq, he had different prices for the male and the female and the children. So. It just, it you know, it really betrays obviously what I was taught in school because I, I was taught that Indians didn't exist anymore. So that was kind of a weird thing. Uh, but that, you know, we had these like peace and friendship treaties and that, you know, settlers came, we shook hands, we gave up our land so that they could <laughs> take care of us. And, you know, this like really horrible myth. And then I, then I started like, once I read your book, I started doing the dates going, wait a second. Some of these scalping bounties or proclamations were issued after some of the peace and friendship treaties were signed. And that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And then I was like, oh, wait, yes, it does make a whole lot of sense to me because we actually didn't surrender any of our lands. It's not only if you look at the barbarism that was, came from Europe and was spread mm -hmm. around the world, you got to keep in mind that right up until 1492, Europeans were so busy uh, fighting among themselves and find more efficient uh, ways to kill one another that by 1492, they were the best armed people in the world. And yeah. uh, when they went abroad and came to the Americas and Australia and Africa and what have you, uh, there was no contest there. The people couldn't defend themselves. So uh, the, uh, I often wish that Cornwallis had landed up in Cherokee country or, or uh, even Maya country. I doubt very much if he would have took a boatload boat of uh, Maya people or Cherokees back as slaves in 1492, but uh, we, you've got to be knowledgeable if you're going to mm -hmm. talk about uh, this kind of thing but, and talk about their own history. Uh, it's, uh, you know, like King Henry VIII when I was young, my God, you hear the people talking and swear to God they were talking about the saint. <laughs> <laughs> that man was one of the most horrible men that ever lived. He never had no qualms about killing off his relatives when it uh, uh, was in his best interest to do so. So, you know, uh, you look at all these heroes like uh, you have around the world that are in pedestal, yeah. uh, Amherst, for instance. Uh, Jeffrey Amherst, why in the name of God is towns named after that man for God's sake? It's impossible. Even Cornwallis. I don't know if he wasn't kissing ass buddies with the king at the time uh, of England, he probably would have never been uh, uh, gov uh, uh, governor of Nova Scotia because of what he did in Scotland, him and his troops uh, to the uh, it was barbaric. They were slaughtering the uh, the, uh, the Catholic Scots on the battlefield and uh, in the Highlands. And some instances, one particular was particularly brutal. They uh, had a bunch of them in a house and boarded up all the doors, windows, and burned the place down. Uh, given this man the, uh, the hero status, my God, even if he hadn't done what he done here with the Scale Proclamation. He should never have been idolized for that alone. And uh, Lord Bing was uh, accused of treason in, I think, 1756, and so was Cornwallis. Unfortunately, they only shot uh, Lord Bing. They didn't shoot 
my God. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, you really uh, got to look at history the way it transpired. And I think it was uh, what I did was bring out of the closet the hidden history of uh, mm. Nova Scotia and Canada. Okay. And uh, I have no regrets whatsoever. I'd go back and do it over again many times over. Uh, did I get hate mail and all that? Yes, I did. And uh, I uh, never concerned me too much one way or the other, to be honest with Well, you know, I don't know if you knew at the time the power of your book and how important it would be, not just for educating Nova Scotians or Canadians, but for Mi'kmaq people in particular to know what our real history is, to to kind of, because you're taught in every way, whether it's, you know, at residential schools or day schools or by governments or by teachers in, in, in uh, normal schools, we're always taught the myth, the propaganda, the vilification. And so it's almost like there's no way to get the good information except from each other. And, but it's documented. So I think the best remedy to myth and propaganda is documented history. That's like, right. here it is. No, we were not the savages. And unless they can provide proof otherwise, and they never have, nope. then they need to own their own history. I think the Big Bob uh, in 1492 probably had one of the most advanced civilizations in the world, to be honest with you. And, uh, in uh, human relations in particular, uh, honor was the, uh, you know, the requirement of kids from the time they were born until they grew up and uh, the, their entire life was spent in bettering uh, uh, the life of the entire community, not just themselves, okay? And uh, I believe the Mi'kmaq probably had one of the highest standards of living in the world in, in 1492. Uh, seas were full of uh, fish and the forests were teeming with uh, wildlife and what more could you ask for? <laughs> well, and the stories, like all the, you know, some of the traditional stories, I know they change depending on where you're <clears throat> from, uh, but it, there's all these stories about like an old couple who finds a child and they had, don't have enough to eat themselves, but they make sure that, every, you know, they feed this child and take care of this child. And there's just so many of the stories that the moral of it is we're taking care of one another. And it just seems like such a, a, a like a foundational value that the honor and the sense of collectivity versus individual. Well, it was a you society, a Mi'kmaq society, and the European society was a me society. I've enhanced my wealth, and maybe if I have something left over, I might give it to you. But Mi'kmaq society was shared, and everything was shared equally across the board. And uh, uh, I always remember a little story I heard one time about this chief being interviewed, and he was told about these huge castles where the kings and queens of uh, Europe lived and he uh, struck him quite funny and he said I could imagine me having 100 uh, wigwams and trying to live in all of them. <laughs> 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 it's senseless in other words yeah exactly uh, 
But, uh, you know, some of it's funny, too. I always remember when I was in Boston way back in the 1950s reading a little article about uh, this Cherokee guy, and I think it was in Georgia, was uh, engaged to the white lady, and the KKK took an uh, exception to it and burned the cross on his lawn. And uh, the next night, uh, three KK houses burnt to the ground. (laughs) 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 And the the wedding went off without incident. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But we landed... (coughs) Pardon me. We landed in New York City for uh, New Year's Eve years ago in the 50s. My aunt and the, the three cousins... And uh, uh, they were forget it because we decided to park the car. I found a parking garage and parked the car, and then we got a taxi. And uh, none of us ever stayed at a YM or YWCA before, so my aunt asked taxi driver, can anybody stay at the, these places? And his response was, uh, Every, anybody except dogs and Indians. Oh, no! <laughs> and... Uh, well, uh, late at home, well, uh, five Indians is going to stay there tonight. And, you know, the, the poor man, I thought if he could have crawled under the seat, he would have. To his credit, he never charged us anything for taking us to the Y. And then he uh, picked us all up the next day and took us on a grand tour of New York City and no charge. So. Oh, wow. So, uh, this kind of response wasn't really racism. It was just a stereotypical information that he had acquired over the years. And, you know, and, and uh, so you got to, you know, uh, look at the circumstances when some of this happens and uh, yeah. along with it. And then some other times it can be uh, really trying. I remember in Boston, I was working at a factory and we were out in the courtyard having lunch one day and, had a certain in a circle and everybody was uh, you know going on about their ancestral roots and they went around they finally came to me and I told them well guess and god they guessed I was a middle eastern uh, arab and on and on and on and then finally one said there's only one other thing you could be and that's an indian and I said yeah that's it and he it's just like I had admitted to having the uh, the most contagious disease in the world. And uh, uh, my friendly relationship with most of them ended that day. And uh, But jobs were plentiful that time in Boston. So I told them to shove it and I went. <laughs> Go find the Mohawks and hang out with them. <laughs> and, uh, but, but that's, you know, uh, life. And yeah. I think, you know, as all these pieces put together is what, I guess, propelled me to, uh, to change things as much as I could possibly do in my life. And, and you have, you have, I mean, obviously this book is, is powerful, but, you know, in your columns, in all of the lectures that you give, the wisdom that you share, I mean, there's been times throughout history, I've sent you an email saying, hey, somebody is saying Mi'kmaq people used to do X, Y, and Z. And, uh, you know, maybe it was a certain clan or it was dream catchers or something. And I knew I always knew you would know the answer and you would write back and say, no, this is the way it was or that's the way it was. And that's that's like an incredible resource to have to know because I didn't live back then and I don't know. 
but you know, not just from lived experience, but like you've done a ton of research and talked to a million people. Well, when you're reading these old uh, records and what have you, you'll find that uh, a lot of these scribes, uh, European scribes, have uh, were kind of uh, in awe, I guess, of uh, indigenous civilizations, people. And uh, I like to point out one of the falsies of uh, uh, many historians was that the uh, uh, so-called captives that the tribes had of white people, uh, you know, were hell-bent and determined to get away from them. Uh, and I found out it was exactly the opposite. Most of these people really wanted to stay with the <laughs> captives because it was the first time they ever had the taste of freedom in their life. <laughs> and, and when you're uh, looking at that kind of thing, it, uh, it's... Uh, demonstrates to you that what kind of great civilization you had that uh, if I you know I I read a paper one time a long time ago and I believe it was 25 uh, archaeologists and uh, these were asked the question if you could go back 500 years uh, uh, and you had the choice to go you know to an indigenous civilization in the Americas or uh, back to Europe uh, they thought, and it was supposed to be anonymous, and it all came back that the 25 of them would have stayed in the Americas. <laughs> oh my gosh, no, there's no no contest, just no contest. The barbarianism versus what we had. And when, uh, you know, you're looking at uh, some of the civilizations that Spanners walk, uh, Spaniards walk in the streets of a great metropolis, uh, in uh, the southern part of the continent, and uh, they were like, uh, uh, you know, country hicks going to New York and looking around at, the, and you have to keep in mind in 1492 in places like uh, London and Paris and Rome and uh, Madrid, and there was no uh, sewer systems, and uh, what happened to the night soil was most of them opened the window in the morning and threw it out the streets. And so uh, uh, I could imagine when a city as large as Paris, you're walking along there and it must have smelled it for miles. Ugh. But when they, these uh, people were walking along the boulevards in this town, uh, city, which was larger than any city in Europe, by the way, they had actually had water and sewer, running water and sewer at that time it was sparkling clean. And they also had uh, great gardens uh, that never existed in Europe at that point in time. So when you uh, have uh, looting on your mind, it's easy to invent propaganda that depict people to be barbarian, savages, bloodthirsty, but somewhere the truth will prevail. And uh, I think in our case, uh, yes. it's began, it's getting there. <laughs> uh, it's getting there. Oh, and the theme is <laughs> we were not the savages. I know you're working on the fourth edition and you're hoping that it'll be probably released in the new year, potentially. It will be released uh uh, uh, probably the date I'd like to have is uh, September 30th next year. Okay, that's awesome. But uh, 
my hope was to have it all completed by the end of this year. Okay. Um, and the reason for that is, uh, like I say, I'm 83. <laughs> 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 Hopefully I'll wake up every morning with my eye open you know, <laughs> September 30th next year, but you know. <laughs> oh, so uh, is there, is there, um, obviously there'll be, you'll probably make revisions to what was in the third edition or is it more about adding more stuff? No, it's revising a lot of it. Then uh, more information I came of, uh, gathered over time and what have you. And uh, mm -hmm. it, it'll be interesting. I, uh, I'll put it that way. Uh, I think it'd be far more interesting than one year old. <laughs> <laughs> That's a high standard because this one, this one is the book. It's the book every Native person reads in university, the first book. It's my idea to, uh, I wasn't going to do it, but, you know, a lot of things have changed between 2006 and now, and yeah. uh, including the Indian Act. And by the way, I want to make one statement about the Indian Act. Uh, man, we got billions out of it so far, so let's not chuck it away too quick. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, that's Rates a good point. It's awful you know. Yeah. <laughs> Chief Lawrence Paul, um, the deceased Chief Lawrence Paul from Millbrook, when I wrote my book on Indigenous identity, his thing was, yeah, you know what? We can get rid of some of the parts of the Indian Act, but I'd like to keep some of the parts of the Indian Act, please. Don't get rid of those too quickly. Well, uh, uh, when I worked at the Confederacy, I had a meeting range probably around 1991, 92. I can't remember exact date with Minister of Indian Affairs and uh, walked into his office, sat down, exchanged, you know, pleasant degrees, and then he immediately got down to business and he told me, he says, uh, I want you to know I'm working very hard toward getting rid of the Indian Act. He says, uh, what you want? And I said, who in the hell told you I want to get rid of the Indian Act? <laughs> I said, uh, uh, I have no problem with the Indian Act. It's, uh, you know, uh, uh, the administrators of the Indian Act. Or in the past, I had a lot of problems with. Yeah, like you said uh, it's going to prove to be a, a gold mine for us in the future, and this, which it has. And it's <laughs> going, there's a lot more gold to be mined from it too. And uh, uh, I really think we uh, should look at the fact that it wasn't the act. The piece of paper can't do you damage. Right. It's uh, individuals that can. Uh, you know, uh, twist the meaning of the yes. paper, not do you damage. Oh my gosh. I think that's the most important point I tell my students every year. Listen, this piece of paper known as the Indian Act, nothing in there says murdered and missing Indigenous women. Nothing says foster care crisis. Nothing says homelessness. Like all the things that have been done to us, you won't find that for the most part in the Indian Act. It's the government that did all these other things. Well, it's funny, you know, in, uh, uh, in the book, I talk about the uh, incompetence of the bureaucrats of Indian Affairs. And uh, in 1993, when the first edition was uh, to be published, uh, Dimbus was quite leery about publishing what I had to say about Indian Affairs. <laughs> and uh, 
I just laughed and I told him, I said, that never open up that can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> and they never have and they never would because what I said in there was true and I could prove it. They taken, uh, I mentioned in the book <clears throat> about the fact that uh, uh, Canada was going to make a donation to the Palestinian Authority. And before they would release any money, the Palestinians had to prove that they had the ways and means to manage the money and look after it and everything. And uh, here in Canada, our bands, they released millions upon millions and millions to our bands. And uh, we never had the means to do anything. As a matter of fact, when I went to work for Indian Affairs in 1971, I was the only person in the region that could actually do any accounting and uh, do wow. any wow. so, uh, uh And at that time, I went up White Hogma, I believe it is, I have in the book, and uh, this I'll never forget. I asked the lady who was bookkeeper at the time, uh, actually it was uh, uh, Ben Silboy's wife, the grand chief, and uh, uh, never forget it. And she said, uh, I don't do books. And says, all I have is this uh, book, uh, you know, a general ledger I write in and what have you. And uh, and uh, I said, well, where, who does your bank reconciliation? She said, well, the auditors do it. And I said, uh, where's your banks? And she had 55 bank accounts oh. at the <laughs> the Imperial Bank of Commerce, the uh, experts at Indian Affairs in the district office told her every time you get a program from us, open another bank account. Oh. And, and uh, the funniest one was when I went to Eskasoni, and this was really funny and uh, because uh, I asked uh, uh, the clerk there, the lady was supposed to be doing the books there, whether she was doing a bank reconciliation or something like that. And she said, no, all I do is record the checks in this uh, <laughs> book when I, you know, write them. So I went in to see the auditor and up to that point, all he was talking to was a layman, you know, people without uh, employees from the department, no experience in bookkeeping or anything else. And I um, brought it to his attention. I said, now, when are you going to start uh, going to Eskasoni and teaching them how to do bank reconciliation, stuff like that? And I never forget it because he was a portly little man, probably about uh, five foot four or something like that, and quite round, sitting behind his desk and he had his hands up like that. And he said, well, Mr. Paul, I want to tell you that doing a bank reconciliation is a very difficult thing <laughs> and I said you were supposed to be a chartered accountant he said yes and I said well let me tell you this before I took this job I was chief bookkeeper at Staticona non-public fund Staticona and under that we had one bank account and we did the bookkeeping for 35 different outlets and each one each month we produced a financial statement for them and we never had no problems doing the bank reconciliation. Now, would do you want to continue? And yeah. Mr. Paul, tomorrow I'll go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, you know, uh, 
corruption, like uh, yeah. taking advantage of a situation where they were making a lot of money. Yeah. But, uh, and, and I think of all the scandals with Indian affairs, that's one of the worst because I think they uh, set back our self-government by uh, a long yeah. time. Oh my gosh. Yeah, exactly. So anyway. <laughs> yeah, so much. But um, so what, I'll, what I'm going to do, uh, thank you, first of all, for taking the time to share stories from your life, how you got into this, about your book, the issues in the book, the fact that there's going to be a forthcoming one that's so exciting. And what I will do for the listeners slash viewers is post a link to where they can buy your book now or um, your website, because there's lots of information on your website and, you know, some of the media that you've done and things like that. So that people, if they want to know more information, they can go there. And um, I, I really want to thank you for talking to me today because I've, I've always admired you. I love listening to you and now I'll have this podcast forever. I'll just be able to listen to this. And then when you do your fifth edition and your sixth edition, it's just going to get better and better when you're like, I'm 93 and I've got to hurry up and write this sixth edition. <laughs> I'll be old as Methuselah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but thank be, you. You're a really I'll important person to with, so many of us. I'll be quite happy with the fourth edition. And that will my be my grand finale. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And thanks to all the listeners for listening to the Warrior Life podcast. Don't forget to support Native people by buying and promoting their work wherever you can. You're going to find an awful lot of truth in this book, We Were Not the Savages. And like I said, I'll post a link. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Malalia.